Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And we are back in the book of Romans for the next couple of months. And um, what we're going to do is, as we kind of get ramped up today, I want to take a little bit of time to provide some introductory comments, some big picture context as we go into this next section. You know, when we look at the book of Romans, Romans really can be divided um, in a big picture way in three different sections. Romans chapters 1 through 8, which is a section we just finished covering. Romans chapters 9 through 11, which is what we're going to start this morning. And then Romans chapters 12 through 16. You really can divide the book into those three large sections. And so it's really important as we study and as we come into this section, because um, if I can, let's just, I want to read the last couple of verses of Romans chapter 8, and I want to read the first couple of verses in Romans chapter 9, because what you're going to see, um, it's almost like attending a birthday party with Eeyore, okay? Everyone's really excited and pumped up, and there's lots of cool things going on. I mean, balloons are going off, there's a, there's a comedian, there's a bouncy house, and then Eeyore's like, yeah, but I lost my tail. You know, man, where's my tail? I guess I'll just have to go on life without my tail. And there's this sudden shift in emotion. And I just want you to see it as we kind of pick up the last couple of verses. So verse 37 in Romans chapter eight, Paul writes this. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. And we say, amen, hallelujah, pop the balloons, throw the confetti. It's all, it's all awesome. But then look how he starts chapter nine. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And you're like, dude, Paul, what happened? <laughs> you know, what, what did he swallow, a Cheerio, and just, I mean, start coughing it up? I mean, what happened? Why the sudden shift in tone? And so that's what we want to look at. We want to introduce this, this whole section this morning with a couple of context, uh, comments. Here's the truth about studying the scriptures. Context has to rule in our interpretation. Many, many interpretive issues can be solved if we get a better understanding of context. This is especially true in this next section that we're about to tackle in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because I believe, now you can disagree with this, is one of those statements you can disagree with. And it's totally fine. We can discuss it. But I believe this is one of the most unique passages in all the Bible. This section, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I think it's unique because I think what we have is, is Paul is anticipating uh, an issue. Paul is anticipating a misunderstanding. And he, he wants to clarify this misunderstanding before it gets too far out of bounds. And so this is a, a unique section. And so we want to keep the context key. And so... Each week, I'll probably sound like a broken record because we want to keep the context key. That's so key in all of these passages. There's very familiar passages in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. We want to study that verse in context. 
right? I mean, that's what we want to do when we come to the Bible. We actually want to know and understand what the Bible is trying to communicate. So this is more important here, although it's always important. I believe it's really important here in this section. So that's why we're going to take some time to introduce it. We'll take some time to restate it throughout the week, uh, throughout the weeks that we study. Here's what we've got to understand. This entire section, 9, 10, 11, is about Israel. We, we have to keep that context in mind. It's written largely to the nation of Israel or about the nation of Israel. Now, we touched that a couple of times, and we'll see that as we go. But a lot of what Paul is dealing with, and we can see this if we took the time to read Romans 9, 1 through 5, and then Romans 9, 30 through 31, you're going to see that each chapter begins and ends with Israel. That's why I've got those written up there. Romans 10, 1, Romans 10, 21, Romans 11, run, Romans 11, 26. You're going to see this all throughout this passage that this is who Paul is dealing with. And what he's dealing with is this, the nation as a whole, so the nation of Israel as a whole, and then individual response to the gospel from within that nation. Those are, that's what we're dealing with in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And as uh, many people will say, and, and I think it's accurate, Romans 9 is going to reflect God's past dealings with the nation of Israel. Romans 10 is going to reflect God's present dealings with the nation of Israel. And Romans, uh, Romans 10, and then Romans 11 is going to reflect God's future dealings with the nation of Israel. That's the overall context of this section. So we've got to keep that in mind as we go to interpret this section. What we're going to find is that there are corporate and national promises that God has made to Israel that are unconditional. In fact, what we're going to see in this section is that the church is not even mentioned. And what we're going to notice is that the Old Testament was quoted 14 times in Romans 1 through 8. And when we get into this section, Romans 9 through 11, it's quoted 28 times in this section alone. So it's a heavy emphasis on the Old Testament. And I believe what Paul is trying to to show is how can God's promises to Israel be unconditional as a nation and yet see so much individual rejection by the Jews in Paul's day and subsequently in our day. And I think that's what Paul is putting together for us in this section. So there's corporate unconditional promises and at the same time, there's an individual response of faith required by the Israelite to enjoy these promises. And so what you might say is there's a guaranteed destination for the nation. It's going to happen. One day God is going to establish his millennial kingdom. That's going to be true for the nation of Israel. They are going to uh, embody that kingdom. They're going to own the land that God had promised them from the Abrahamic covenant forward and, and promised all throughout the Old Testament. This is one day going to be true of that nation but only the individuals who respond by faith to the gospel will get to enjoy the promises made to a nation in whole. We see this really clearly shown a couple places in the gospels. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? He says, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. See, there's, there's, there's got to be salvation. There's got to be justification. There's got to be a birth from above, even for the Jew. And what was the common misunderstanding in Paul's day and Jesus' day by the Jewish people? Well, you can see it in the ministry of John the Baptist. They needed to repent. 
What do they need to change their mind about? Well, John goes on to describe that later in his ministry. He says, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. In other words, don't just think because you're an ethnic descendant from Abraham that you're getting into the kingdom. And see, Paul is, is further explaining that concept here. There's unconditional promises to the nation, but each individual Jew must respond to the gospel. And so in order to continue this and get this proper context, I think we need to understand the flow of thought. And that's what we're going to try to really draw out this morning as we jump into to Romans 9. What is the flow of thought? What is Paul's flow of thought? Why did the Spirit of God lead Paul into this flow of thought? In fact, what you'll notice in the book of Romans is many times Paul, in order to transition and move to another topic, he uses a question. We notice that in Romans 6, right? What, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he uses that as an objection, a perceived objection, by somebody who might have got really upset with something he said back in chapter 5, which is where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. So he anticipates an objection. Paul's doing the same thing here, but he doesn't introduce it with a question. He will introduce it uh, with a question uh, later on. He'll go back to that question introduction model. But what was his flow of thought? What did the Spirit of God why did the Spirit of God lead Paul to record Romans 9 through 11? That's kind of the question. Well, I think the, the big picture answer to that is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And we've got to remember this because this is going to be a section in Romans where if your, your view of church is to come with your felt need cup, empty to be filled up by the sermon each week, there might not be direct application for you in this section. This might not be a section that hits some of the felt needs that we all go through. And we all have felt needs right now. We all have things that are on our mind. This, this may or may not be a section that fills that cup. And we got to be okay with that. Why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And this is scripture. And there's a reason this is here. And there's a reason that it's here for you to benefit from it. Now, it may not tell you how to behave when the boss says something cross to you tomorrow. It may not help your marriage tomorrow or this afternoon. It may not help your child raising. But you know what? It's the word of God. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that it's profitable. It's profitable for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And only that, verse 17, it says it, it thoroughly equips the man of God to make them able to do good works. Equip us for good work. So this is part of those sections that we're diving in to the word of God. And again, it might not have that, that right top of the cuff application to our daily life. And I know that's not necessarily popular in our day, but we believe the word of God is profitable. So we want to look at it. We want to not skip over this section and understand why Paul is going here. And so to try to understand the flow, what we can see from the context is as Paul is wrapping up chapter 8 he could have naturally gone on to chapter 12. He could have not even written chapters 9 through 11. Let me give you uh, the point in case. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And you notice that word, therefore, in chapter 12, 1. 
And you notice he references the mercies of God. And I believe he's referencing, he, he could be referencing just the truths we see in Romans 1 through 8, which is our great salvation in all three tenses, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Um, but I also believe as we get to the end of Romans 9 through 11, we're going to see that he's also referencing his mercies as it relates to his nation Israel, included with all the mercies uh, in chapters 1 through 8. But he could have jumped straight from chapter 8 into chapter 12, and many would have thought we're not missing a beat. Because what does Paul typically do in his, apostle, in, in his epistles? Well, this is his normal, his normal pattern, his doctrine, then practice. And so when we get into Romans 12 through 16, what section are we getting into in the book? How does this practically work out in the Christian life? And so he's given us the doctrine in Romans 1 through 8, and then he can just naturally carry it out in Romans 12 through 16, which begs the question, why did he do it the way he did it then? Why is Romans 9 through 11 there? And so what I just gotta, we've got to recognize that this is here for a purpose. So to understand why he wrote it, we must understand the perceived problems that the teachings in Romans 1 through 8 had created. There were some problems that this teaching was, was creating, largely in the mind of, of Jews, both unbelievers and believers, but I believe also in the minds of Gentiles. And let's kind of um, look at that a little bit more closely, or at least mention some, some thoughts. You know, when the church started back in Acts 2, the church was 100% Jewish, 100% Jewish. The people that responded to the gospel in Peter's first couple of sermons, 100% Jewish. In fact, we don't get even the first Gentile convert until Acts chapter 10 uh, in the story recorded for us regarding Cornelius. Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9. Paul receives his missionary calling in Acts chapter 13. And we see that as Paul begins to take this message out, that fewer and fewer Jews are responding to the gospel and more and more Gentiles are. And Paul starts to recognize his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, so much so that by the time Romans is written, about 56, 57 AD, so we're looking at, you know, 20 20 years or so after the resurrection of Christ, the church is largely Gentile. It's it's almost flipped itself on its head. It's almost 100% Gentile. Very few Jews are responding. In fact, the Jews who are responding are largely responding negatively and violently. They're chasing Paul all over uh, that, that whole area of Macedonia we're, we're seeing. And so the question is, what happened? What happened to God's people? And that's kind of uh, the deal. And so uh, it begged the question here, and this is probably the main question of this section. This is the perceived question that Paul thinks is being asked or he wants to address. Now, Paul, why would Paul have an insight into how a Jewish person would think? Well, he used to be, a Jew on a stick. I mean, he used to be it as a Jew, right? He was like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was progressing much farther than anybody his own age. So he understood how Jewish people thought. And when they begin to see all of the Gentiles flood in, and they begin to see all of the Jews, the you know, majority doesn't always rule, does it? Majority doesn't always mean somebody's right. And begin to see the majority of the Jews rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So the question, well, why have they been rejected? Why are they not responding to the Messiah? Why, why is this going on for the nation of Israel? Why are we seeing this? That's the question that he's anticipating here. You know, the other thing that we, 
we see, and I think um, it, it's, it's a subtle thing, but if you'll just uh, hold your place in Romans, we will come back to there. Go, go with me to Acts 18.2. We introduced this concept at the very beginning of our study, but I think it's, it's good to bring back out, is that there were some geopolitical things going on when Paul wrote this book or shortly before he wrote this book. And um, part of that could have led to anti-Semitism. And let's, let's look at a geopolitical event outside of the church that happened in Acts 18.2. Um, in fact, go back to 1, Acts 18.1. After these things, Paul departed for, from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So we see this subtle mention of a geopolitical item that had happened in history. It's recorded Claudius the emperor had expelled the Jews from Rome. There was um, this potential where, and I think even at that time, they, they viewed the Jews as, or the Christianity as a sect of Judaism. And so they might have even been confusing that. Some of the writings that had said that some of the Jews were fomenting rebellion because of the name Crestus which could have been a, a, you know, Christ, and, and the way that they recorded that, and may have confused the church with the Jews, and so he expels all the Jews from Rome. We see people lost their homes. They lost their, their businesses as a result. And so even within the church, as, as the Gentile believers start to see the Jews getting kicked out, maybe, maybe some anti-Semitism could have been developing. You know, I think he, that's one possibility. But I think one of the other things that we could probably really put our nail down on in this area, why this would be the case. Do you know, at, at this point in history, the Jewish people were the biggest persecutors of Christians? So, so I mean, we don't even like when somebody accidentally cuts us off on the road. Like, we, we get upset with them, and we can imagine harmful things happening to that person, and maybe even uh, at our own hands, Right? But imagine, imagine a group of people coming after you to harm you, to harm your family, to harm uh, everything that you own and hold dear. How would you feel about those, that group of people? In fact, you know, in our day, um, you know, racism is being decried everywhere, right? And, you know, all it takes is, is somebody from another race to do something negative to you. And how easy is it to then begin to paint with a broad brush and say, oh, those pe- all those people, all that type of people, all that race of people, all that religious type of people, they're all a bunch of whatever, selfish jerks, you know. Um, I, was, I was actually um, at the airport uh, in Newark, New Jersey, when I was heading to Liberia, and um, we, had a, we were uh, getting ready to fly to Belgium, and there was a group of Orthodox Jews that were there, um, and, and I mean, they're pretty easy to spot because they've got kind of the curly, uh, curly sideburns. And, and, and I remember thinking we were standing there in line and, and a group of them just went right in front of us and cut right in front of us. And I thought, wow, that wasn't very nice. But you know, I, I also thought about this. I wonder if somebody who already had something out for Jews said, oh, those, those Jews, those Jews are so, and just lump everybody into a group. Well, I, I think that there was a potential that there was so much persecution coming from Jewish people that some of the Gentile believers, some of the Gentile Christians might have said, oh, those Jews, 
Oh, they're, they're bad. I think another thing we saw actually develop later on in church history, um, but I think was, was in seminal form probably here, is this, this idea that the Jews crucified Jesus, and they deserve the blame. They crucified our Lord. Let's hate these people. And, you know, that was the, the ground for much of the persecution, much of the anti-Semitism um, in the Dark Ages was this very concept. They killed Jesus, so we're going to kill them. It's kind of the deal. And so I think it was probably present even in seminal form here. And then, you know, we also see this, this um, battle over doctrine. This battle over, do, do Gentile believers have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law of Moses? Are they, are they really on equal ground with Jewish believers who have responded to the Messiah? After all, the Jew would say, Jesus was a Jew. He's, he's our Messiah. You guys can tap into him a little bit, but he's really for us. And so you can see maybe how Gentiles were viewed as second-class Christian citizens by other Jews and looked down upon. And maybe many Gentiles had even felt that. In fact, we gather that story from Antioch uh, when Paul corrected Peter in the book of Galatians. And what had Peter been doing? Well, he had been, before these men came from Judah, Peter had been sitting down and eating with Gentiles, slapping them on the back, you know. I don't know what, what they were doing, but hanging out like, like people hang out when they eat, uh, sharing a meal together, not, not segregating themselves. As soon as the men came from Judah uh, or Judea, what did Peter do? He began to remove himself as if they were second-class citizens. And so you can see possibly how some of the Gentile believers may have been started to or at least had the mindset to possibly be anti-Semite and say, you know what? The church is better than the Jews. God is now working with the church. He's given up on the Jews. And so I think Paul is writing this to say, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. God's not done with the nation of Israel. So he's going to spend some time discussing that. I think another potential future implication, that is a picture that's designed to represent the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, this was an event that was going to happen 13 or 14 years ahead. I don't necessarily think Paul knew that it was going to happen, but I think the Spirit of God knew that this was going to happen. And I think the Spirit of God knew that he wanted this truth in Romans 9 through 11 recorded. Because imagine what believers might have thought had Romans 9 through 11 not been written saying that God had a future plan for Israel. Imagine the destruction of Jerusalem. Imagine the slaughter of close to one million Jews. Imagine the burning to the ground of the temple, the place of worship. How do you think the early church would have interpreted that event without Romans 9 to 11? Well, I think the natural way to interpret that is God's done with the Jews. We're his people now. We're, we're the apple of his eye. Israel's a, they were a past, they were a past people. They're no longer. And I think that would have been a very natural way um, for the church to, to say that, hey, we've replaced Israel. And so I think that's another reason that Paul may have written this is to anticipate that event via the Spirit of God leading him to write it so that when it did happen, the church wouldn't just write off Israel and say, we are now Israel. In fact, um, what many people today, and there's, a, there's actually a theology called replacement theology, and what they basically te- teach in a nutshell is everywhere you see Israel in the Old Testament, just insert the word church. That's, that's, now our, that's now our promises, that's now our truth. Well, that creates a dilemma. That creates a problem. 
Because if God makes promises to the nation of Israel and doesn't keep them, he just got through making a ton of promises to the church in Romans chapter 8. If, so if he's not compelled to keep his promises to Israel, why can we count? Why should we count on his promises? You see the dilemma? You see where we, we kind of get touched by this? And see, one of the things that I think Romans 9, 10, and 11 emphasizes, if we don't take anything else, is God is trustworthy. You can trust your God. You can trust his integrity. When he tells you he's going to do something, he will do it. When he makes a promise, he will keep it. When God promises eternal life, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's up to him to keep that promise, not to you to hold on to eternal life. He said, you put your faith in Jesus, you have presently possessed eternal life. He's not a life insurance salesman. He doesn't say you get temporary life. And then if you behave for 30 years and you want to convert it to eternal life later, due to good behavior, you can do it. No, he says, the moment you put your faith in Christ, you have eternal life. You possess it. It's yours. And so this is important for us, not only because it's important for Israel, but to understand that we've got a trustworthy God. And if he made promises to Israel, we want God to keep his promises to Israel because that also indicates that he's going to keep his promises to the church. So let's look at the big picture. Why was Romans 9, 10, uh, and 11 written? And again, really trying to just do a quick summary here. We could spend uh, an entire sermon on this, but two main reasons. Number one, to let us know that God's setting aside of Israel And what we mean by that is his primary vehicle of dispensing truth is temporary and not permanent. So the rejection that we're seeing uh, by Israel right now and what appears to be God's rejection or his his lack of fulfillment uh, of his promises to that nation, it's temporary. It's temporary. God has a a, a bigger purpose for what he's doing. And that's going to come out really clearly in Romans chapter 11. He's utilizing the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke his people to jealousy. It's for their good. He wants them to respond. He wants them to get jealous. He wants to, he wants to when you talk about their Messiah, Jesus, and we say we are worshiping your Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, he wants them to get jealous about that. He wants to use that to spur them into checking out if this Jesus of Nazareth is for real. Is he the one that God had prophesied and, so, and, and told them so much about? And he's using this to um, provoke them to jealousy. The second reason is we've got to see that God's setting aside of Israel is not a corporate setting aside. We've got to understand he's not setting aside the whole group because there has been and always will be a remnant who believes. And that's one of the strong themes that we're going to see is that some Israelites, although uh, the nation has been set aside temporarily. There were still some individual Israelites who were responding to the gospel, who were believing that Jesus was their Messiah. And so that's what uh, we see here. And so this section is what uh, this section of scripture is going to explain the apparent shift in God's dealing with Israel as a nation during the church age. It's going to explain why it looks a little bit different now than what it has been looking like in the Old Testament. Because did Jews have any issue, those, those who, who knew the Jewish scriptures, would any of the Jews had any issue about Gentiles being blessed by God? No, in fact, the Old Testament spoke of one day Gentiles receiving 
unprecedented blessing by God. What was confusing the Jews of Paul's day is they always associated that blessing to also be associated with the restoration of the kingdom and, and God ruling on earth with them. They, they associated that future blessing with that time, so they didn't understand what was going on, why the Gentiles were apparently being blessed, and why Paul was seeming to shift away from thousands of years of Old Testament recorded scripture. And so this is Paul's explanation in Romans 9, 10, 11, how this all comes together and how uh, it fits. And so we're going to ramp up uh, to Romans 9 here. We're actually going to get into a couple of the verses here. And so here's the question coming out of Romans chapter 8. If, if God is for his justified ones, which he says he is, and will never remove his love from them, we see that in Romans 8, why has he set aside his chosen people, the Jews, when he had made unconditional promises to them? Why would Gentiles be unable to be separated from his God, but his own people, Israel, could be separated? That's, that's the question coming out of Romans 8. It certainly looks as, if, as though something separated them from his love. Why is that? Because of the small minority of Jews that were actually responding to the gospel. They were actually putting their faith in this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Also, if, if God could set aside or reject Israel, are Christians really that secure? We've kind of addressed that. If God could change his mind about Israel. Now, does, did God, I mean, if you look at Israel's history, would you blame God if he changed his mind about Israel? They weren't exactly the model of perfection or loyalty or faithfulness at all. But see, his promises to Israel weren't based on their faithfulness. You go back to the Abrahamic covenant, you see how he ratified that covenant. Abraham was asleep when he ratified that covenant. It means it was an unconditional covenant. God said he would keep both sides regardless of what Abraham or his children did. Now, there were some conditional things involving the nation, which was enjoyment of the land, not exile. We're studying that concept in, in our Sunday school right now in the book of Jeremiah. And so through lack of faithfulness, they were punished or disciplined. But even in Jeremiah, after all of the crazy, godless, pagan things they were doing, even Jeremiah was prophesying God's word, a a day of restoration for those very pagan, godless Jews. He was prophesying a restoration. And so, um, again, God is not unjust in his dealings with Israel. That's what Paul is going to show he can be trusted to keep his promises to the church. In fact, in Romans 9, 6, this is really kind of a a hinge point in this chapter, but this is where he starts to build his his argument from. Romans 9, 6, uh, notice, we'll bring this out next week, but the word but, he's he's contrasting what he just talked about, which in verses 4 and 5 is, is all of the benefits there were to be a Jew. All of the benefits. But, Notice his contrast, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. And so he's going to explain that God, in setting aside Israel temporarily, has not been unjust with them. And that's what we're going to see. And so he can be trusted to keep his promises to the church. Romans 9, 10, and 11 unfold to us a relative place in God's plan, uh, along with national Israel. And just, just remember, and this, is not, this is not said to put anybody down, but to just challenge our thinking. 
You know, so many times we think the Bible is about me personally. You know, ultimately the Bible is about God's story. What is God doing through the ages? And so many people say, well, that's not important to me. I just want to know. Trust me, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And one of the things that we can pull out of this, if you can't pull anything else out in terms of application, in fact, I am so in, in my thinking, those of you that have been exposed to Bible study methods, right? OAI, observation, interpretation, application. I mean, we're, we're all for that approach, that normal, literal, grammatical approach to the scriptures. And I even used the word application when we taught it back in January on Sunday night. I am so wanting to move away from that word application because I think it doesn't, it, it confuses when we get to passages like this. Because what are you going to apply? What are you, what are you going to apply in a doctrinal st- a section? And so I think in terms of replacing that word application, we should probably replace it with a word like response. How are you going to respond? What, what is here that you can respond to? And there's much in this section that we can respond to. And one of it is worship of our triune God, worship of who he is and what he's done and the great lengths that he's gone to love Israel, to love the church and how faithful he is to his promises. And that's something we can take away. Now, how do I apply that uh, at my job? I don't know, other than walking by faith in the triune God, being convinced more and more, persuaded more and more that he is somebody I can trust in my daily life. He is somebody I can walk by faith in because of who he is and what he's done. And so Romans 9, 1, let's jump in. Paul says, I tell, you, tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul starts off, verse 1, using three phrases to really emphasize that what he's about to say is really the truth. Now, you're going to see these three, three phrases. We'll look at them closely. But you all remember when you were a kid, and, and you were really trying to convince your friends that what you were saying was really the truth. And typically, it came like, it came like a disclaimer. Now, now, guys, you're not going to believe me, but I swear on my whatever grave, right? These were the types of things. I, I kid you not, I swear, I, I, would, I would just give up my baseball card. I'm swearing on my baseball card collection, right? Anything to convince my friends that I was telling them the truth, that you convince me. Paul kind of does something like that here. His first phrase he uses is, I tell the truth in Christ. And notice he brings in, I'm not just telling the truth, but I'm telling the truth in Christ. As a, as a new creation in Christ, I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm not just saying something uh, to get your attention. He's, he's going to tell us exactly what he's thinking. No holds bar. He's telling the truth. Christ is, is a witness to him. Now, why is Paul going through this effort? Well, it's because of what he's about to say in verse 2 and 3, which really sound unbelievable, which, which really sound like, hey, I saw a UFO, right? I mean, it just sounds like way out there. It sounds way out there. Um, and so he's, he's kind of setting them up. This is the preamble. 
And I think that he preemptively is, is responding to perceived accu- accusations that he doesn't care about his nation anymore. See, see, Paul, the reason you're preaching grace is because you've given up on Israel. You're not loyal to the cause. You're a traitor. And so he's going through great lengths to say, no, 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 no. I'm telling you the truth. This is how much I love my people. Second phrase, he says, I'm not lying. All of these are present tense verbs. I'm not lying. Presently, I'm, I'm not continually lying. I'm not being deceitful, nor am I overstating the facts for dramatic effect. You know, we, we do that a lot too, don't we? We'll over-dramatize things. And he says, I'm not overstating this. This is actually how I feel. This is, this is right on the surface of my emotions at all times. This is what Paul, we're getting an insight into the way Paul thinks and the way he, he feels. This, this verb is actually used in the middle voice, which means he's not even doing it for his own purposes. In other words, he's not going to say what he's about to say to make himself look good so that he receives the benefit from it. The third phrase he says is, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And I think what he's trying to say there is that even his conscience is clear. And if it wasn't, the Spirit of God would be convicting him of that. And he's saying, and I'm all free and clear, guys. Like, I really mean what I'm about to say. My conscience is clear. And I think one of the other things we see here, again, a very Jewish emphasis type passage, is I believe Paul is invoking Christ and the Holy Spirit. And he uses a common Jewish legal practice of having two witnesses to verify his statement. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so he's, he's got the two witnesses verifying that what he's about to say is true. And then he says something mind-blowing. This, this is so mind-blowing. Now it, 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 it explains why he took such great care in verse 1 to say, look guys, I'm not lying. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're, they're bearing witness that this is how I feel. Well, how does he feel? Well, he's not feeling well. In fact, verse 2 says that, He's got great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And I want to, uh, to just, before we get to that last statement, which is really incredible, I want to look at the first couple of phrases here. This, this phrase that I have is the present tense. In other words, this is how Paul feels all the time, continually. And he names two things. This is the continual state of his heart. We could say that if, if you had a time machine and you could go back and ask Paul and sit down with him and hang out with him, if you would ask the question, Paul, how do you feel about the way your people are responding to the gospel? You would immediately hit a nerve with him. It, it might even be right on the surface of his emotions. That's what he's communicating here. And what does he say? Well, he says that he's got great sorrow. It means tremendous grief. It means sorrow. One commentator said you could translate this grievous heaviness. Just, just a heaviness as it relates to his countrymen. Just a heaviness as it relates to how they're responding. And then he says continual grief. So he's always got great sorrow. He's always got continual grief. This word continual grief is kind of a repeat of the first word. It means sorrow. It means torment. 
You know, we don't have record necessarily that Paul woke up in the middle of the night or couldn't sleep, but, but if he did, this might be something that was on his mind. This might be something that was grieving him continually. And then uh, you'll notice that this word continual is added. It's, a, it's an additional word in the Greek. And so the idea is that it, it describes something that doesn't have an interval or a gap. In other words, he never stops feeling this way. Can you, can you imagine going through life and never not feeling sorrow or grief? That's how Paul felt. This is how he felt about his own countrymen. So it wasn't like he was rejecting the Jewish people at all. His heart was breaking every time he thought of the Jewish people. In fact, um, this word for is going to further explain or expand upon his thinking. If you wanted to see the Apostle Paul grieve about something, just ask him about the state of his people. They were always on his mind. That's what we we see from this passage. And I want to paint this picture because how often was Paul exposed to this? Well, every synagogue he went into when he went on a mission journey, missionary journey, he was exposed to this rejection. Every casual conversation he had with a fellow Jew, he was exposed to this rejection. And over and over again, in every geographical area that he went to, his heart overflowed with sorrow and grief for his people. Just to see their response to the gospel. And it's, it's so bad, he feels so heavy and so sorrowful that if it was up to him, he wishes he could do something. And this is what's incredible in verse 3. He says this, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. And I believe this is the statement that largely explains why he went through great lengths in verse 1 to explain that he wasn't lying. Because what does he mean by that? Well, the word could wish means to pray or vow, or it came to mean to express a wish or desire. And so Paul had this, this great desire. And what was that desire? That he himself would be accursed in place of his brethren who were rejecting Jesus. And he uses this word in a continual past tense sort of way. In other words, he always has felt like this. It, he's always felt like this. In fact, you see from the moment that Paul gets um, confronted on the road to Damascus by Jesus Christ and gets saved, he immediately, immediately, the text tells us, goes into the synagogues to persuade, to convince his countrymen. He, just as hard as he was persecuting Christians within a moment, he was just as hard pursuing unbelieving Jews so that they might put their faith in Jesus as well. He says that I myself were accursed. This word accursed, those of you that are, have maybe done a Greek word study might be familiar with it. It's the Greek word anathema. Um, the word means uh, cursed, to be forever separated from Christ. Here's an interesting distinction that came out of a lexicon. The word does not denote punishment intended as discipline. See, discipline always has a restorative desire, right? This is not the word he uses here. He uses a word that means given over or devoted to divine condemnation. We might say in modern parlance, I wish that I could go to hell in place of my Jewish countrymen. I don't know about you. I don't know if I've ever loved somebody that much. That's, that's divine love. And, and, you know, the irony um, of that is, is that's exactly what Christ 
did for you. That's exactly what Christ did for me. It's exactly what Christ did for his brethren, according to the flesh, the Jewish people. He suffered that death penalty for them so that they wouldn't have to. And Paul's saying, if I could trade it in, I'd do it. Oh, Paul, you're just being overdramatic. No, look at verse 1. He wasn't. That's actually how he felt. That was on the, the tip of his sleeve, those emotions. Uh, this same word anathema is used in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, describing what Paul recommends for those who preach a, a false gospel, that they would be eternally uh, condemned. And so, as mentioned, the very thing that Paul wished he could do was the very thing that actually that Christ actually did. And so what he's saying here is he would gladly be eternally condemned if that sacrifice could obtain Israel's salvation, all of them. He would do it. Um, obviously, he couldn't. Uh, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but this is something that he would seriously consider if it was a possibility. And you know what's really interesting is you, as you look at the great leaders uh, of the Jewish people over time, do you know that they had a heart for their people, that, that God gave them a shepherd's heart just like this? And if I can just uh, ask you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to see Moses's same kind of bleeding heart for this people. You know, and it didn't come at a time where Israel was really behaving well and really loving on Moses and telling him how great he was. No. This comes immediately following the golden calf incident. And Moses says this in verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not... I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. You see, Moses' heart is right in line with Paul's heart. In fact, I believe even the, the thinking Jew, the one familiar with their history, as they read, read Paul's words in Romans 9, 1 through 3, may have remembered that very passage, may have remembered Moses willing to, in modern parlance, take one for the team. Take one for the team. But not just take one for the team, but to take an eternal condemnation for the team. And Paul is, again, I believe here in Romans 9, trying to convince his people how much he truly loves them and, and why he's got an explanation for what's going on presently with the nation and match it up to the divine promises from the Old Testament and to show that God still has a future for them. And so we'll continue looking at that next week. And we'll begin in verse four next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you uh, for your word. And uh, Lord, as always, we, we need you to be our teacher and we need you to give us uh, eyes to understand uh, your word and ears to hear it correctly. We need to, uh, you to work uh, in our hearts and minds to teach us and to lead us as we study this passage. We, we want to gain the most that we can out of this, Lord, so that we can uh, find in you a, uh, one who is trustworthy in our daily lives, one that we can trust and, and uh, just rely upon with everything going on in our daily lives. And, 
Lord, we're, we're thankful for Jesus. We desire um, Jews from all over the world to see uh, what we see in Jesus, to see the connection from the Old Testament, uh, to see uh, how he lived his life, to see how he died for our sins, to see how he was the final lamb who could take away the sins of the world. We want to we wanna see that. We want to pray for, for those Jews who are close to responding to the gospel, who are interested in, in seeking out the truth, that you would bring them to the truth of the gospel. And we uh, share with Paul and his concern for his countrymen according to the flesh. And we want to see uh, as many Jewish people respond to the gospel as we can. And so give us the ability to communicate it clearly. Give us the ability to offer it as a free gift without strings attached. And give us the ability to focus our gospel on the one who died for us and rose again. And not to distract with all of the things that typically distract. Knowing that he did indeed pay the penalty for our sins, all of them, past, present, and future, and there's no more payment that you require if one simply puts their faith in him. We're grateful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.